Thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. Can suffering and persecution be a blessing? This is episode nine in the Revelation series. In today's episode from the Revelation series with Dr. Rocky Ramsey, we pick up where we left off in episode eight with Pastor Rocky sharing some facts about suffering and affliction. Suffering is not just about what you go through. It's about the you going through it. Now, I've talked about this before. It's not just about what you go through. It's about the you going through it, who you are. Now, many of us know people who've had seemingly small problems, and it devastated them. It wiped them out. And some of us know or know of people who have thrived facing enormous problems. Enormous problems. Johnny Erickson Tata loves the Lord, serves him, enjoys happiness, even though over 50 years ago she lost use of her arms and legs. How could she do that? Look at what she has suffered. But you got to realize who she is. Because she is bigger than what she has suffered. It's not just what you go through. It's the you that goes through it. Corey Tim Boone suffered abuse in a Nazi concentration camp, but she never stopped loving the Lord. Eventually wrote a book that was turned into a movie, The Hiding Place. Some of y'all remember David Miller from Arkansas came here and preached several times. He had muscular atrophy. He was uh, initially, he could walk a little bit with a cane. He scared you to death when he did it. Eventually, he was in a wheelchair. If you, when he was here last time, you could have laid him in this floor, and he would just die. He couldn't have crawled away. And yet you'll probably never meet a man more comfortable in his own skin and more in love with Jesus than David Miller was. What he went through was enormous and tremendous. But who he was in it was greater than what he went through. Victor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist who survived Germany's concentration camps and then went on to write a bunch of books, including a bunch about choosing our attitudes. He said this, and I quote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. Remember, these are men in a concentration camp. These are prisoners helping prisoners. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose, uh, uh, to choose one's attitude in any given sort of, sort, a set of circumstances to choose one's own way. In other words, it's not just what you're going through, it's who you are going through it. Psychologist Robert Emmons writes that there are four basic life goals. This is such good stuff. And they're in your outline. Number one, first life goal, one of, one of those life goals is personal achievement and happiness. Now, how many of you would agree that's the number one goal in America? That's everybody's baby there. Personal achievement and happiness. The second one is relationships and intimacy. They may tie those two together. 
The third is religion and spirituality. And these are, these are the, way he, the words he used to describe it. And then the fourth one is what he calls generativity. Generativity is contributing to society and others. And so that could be a life goal. Now listen closely, this is good. People who invest most of their energy into the goals of personal achievement and happiness and in relationships and intimacy are the most vulnerable to adverse circumstances in their lives. See, if that's where you're going to get your fulfillment and meaning, then it's always in the hands of somebody else. They have the power. Other people are determining who you're going to be, how you're going to feel, the attitude you're going to have, whether life for you is worth living or not. They've got the power because of what you've chosen. See, they're the most likely people to be unhappy. Efforts to seek God and deeper relationships and the, uh, a deep relationship with Him and the good of society, on the other hand, are more insulated from unhappiness. I can seek God when I'm not achieving. I can seek God when I don't feel happy. I can seek God when I'm not in a relationship. You tracking me? I can do good for others. I can serve people. I can use my opportunities to help people. I can do that no matter what other people do. Now, my life's in my hands. Are you following this? This is so good. Now my life's in my hands. I'm the one who determines whether or not I'm going to be happy. See, seeking God and, and generativity, doing things for others, these two can sometimes actually be directly enhanced by suffering. In other words, the more you suffer, the better your life might be. Where obviously suffering does nothing good for the relationships and the, and the, the pursuit of happiness. And what he says is happiness is a byproduct of wanting more than happiness. Did you get that? Happiness is the byproduct of wanting more than happiness. Happiness is the byproduct of living for more than yourself. So I'm happy because I'm giving. About this thing on the, on the boundaries on Sunday morning, we'll talk about how to be enough. But see, you're not to get your happiness from anybody else. That's something that generates inside of you with God. You're not to get your meaning or purpose from anybody else. You need to get that. That's to come from you, not come to you. So happiness is this byproduct. It's something we find when it's not the primary thing we're looking for. And if it's the primary thing you're looking for, it's something you probably never find, at least not for long. See, you don't have control over what others do for you or give to you. If what you receive is what you require for happiness, then, you're, then is what you require for happiness, then you'll, your ability to be happy is always in somebody else's hands. Well, of course I'm not happy. They're not doing this for me. They treated me this way. They didn't give me what I needed or what I wanted. So, of course I'm not happy. But if your happiness is determined by what you give then you always have control over what you give. No person, thing, or circumstance can take that away from you.
Viktor Frankl made these two statements. He said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. It's not the circumstances that make it unbearable, it's the lack of meaning and purpose. If I'm living for something bigger than being happy, then I can have a good life even though I don't feel happy. Make sense? But if I'm living to be happy, and life makes me unhappy, which have you noticed it does a lot of that? Especially in 2020? Then I've given the power of my life over to things and people outside of myself. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And he also said this, he said, those who have a why to live for can bear with almost any how. So what you want to live for is something bigger than yourself. And what you want to live for, and we're going to get that here in a moment, and what you want to, you want to live for something that you have power over, not where you become the victim of what other people do or don't do for you, which is how probably 90% of the people live their lives. If, if Johnny Erickson Tata needed to be, if her goal in life was to be happy, how do you think she'd be doing? She'd probably commit suicide about 50 years ago. Found some way to do it. Found somebody she, they would offer. How would she do that? Corey Tim Boone tells a story. I read it just today. I was looking at some stuff where she was, uh, it was after the, the war. She was somewhere and in walks this man. As soon as she saw him, she remembered him. He was one of the men who abused her and her sisters in the concentration camp. He was a former German soldier, and he had become a Christian, and he came up and asked her to forgive him, and she did. If you're living for happiness, you're not happy, at least not for long. Suffering's not just about what you go through, it's about the you that goes through it. So two people can go through the same kind of event one does okay and maybe fine, and, and the other does horribly. Because it's not the what so much as it is the you. It's, just not, it's not just about what's happening to us. It's about who we are and what's going on inside of us. Now, back in your outline. A French philosopher of the last century made this distinction uh, between what happiness uh, what happens to us and what goes on inside of us. In other words, she made distinction between the event that happens and the response to that event. So here's what she said. Number one in your outline, suffering is our external circumstance. It's our external circumstance. Something happens. We can't avoid it. Somebody else doesn't love us. We lost our job. The economy's gone down. We've lost our retirement. A million things it could be. That's suffering. It's an external circumstance. And those are difficult. It's what's happening to us. But number two, she differentiates and uses the word affliction for our internal experience. So you go through suffering... And how you handle the suffering is going to be determined by what you do with the affliction. The affliction is how you're processing the event. 
It's what you're doing with what happened to you, how you're framing it. So, for example, for Christians, for, uh, you know, we think, okay, something bad happened. Somebody says, you know what? We live in a cursed world. Jesus never promised good, that everything would always go our way. He's with me. He's given me strength. It's awful, but I'm going to make it. See, that's what went on inside of this person. Somebody else says, how could God let this happen? God doesn't love me. God can't be good. Look what happened. See, the suffering was the same for both people. The affliction was entirely different. Make sense? It's the process that goes on inside of you. In your outline uh, are what Simone Vey, that's how you pronounce it, it's a French lady, who calls, the, she calls these the marks of suffering. This is really good stuff. Number one is, is isolation. When we suffer, we tend to be isolated. Why? Because we're emotionally separated from everyone who hasn't gone through the same thing. So think about your suffering, what it is. Some of you have had somebody that you care about murdered. Some of you have had somebody that you care about commit suicide. Some of you have somebody dear to you who's gay. Uh, and we could go through a whole list of somebody that has gone through a bankruptcy like you did. Business went south, whatever. Those people, you have a connection with them because you know that to some degree they know your pain. They buried their husband too or their wife or whatever it might be. So, but apart from those people who have had the same event as you, you feel isolated. They don't know. They don't understand. It's also, this isolation is also caused, and I will talk about this more next week, by friends who stay away to avoid entering into your pain. And there's a lot of them. And so we've had, you know, I've, I've buried some teenagers. I've buried some very small children. I've buried two basically newborns. And most, mostly what happens is you'll find people, you see them at the grocery, and you just avoid them. Because you don't want to talk to them because they're going to be hurting and you, do, you can't fix them. And so what happens is this person starts feeling, they're more concerned with how they look and feel because they can't fix the hurting person than they are the hurting person, which is really dark. I remember years ago, there were a couple in church of just the dearest of friends, and one of them was in the hospital really sick, and one of their best friends never went to the hospital. You go, What? If I went, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to fix it. And so I would feel bad. Do you realize how dark that is? How immature that is? How self-centered that is? But your pain will isolate you. I guarantee you, you go through some real suffering, you, there will be people who will not enter in. And what they need is come in and say, tell me about your husband that you lost. What do you remember most about him? Tell me about how much you loved him. Where'd you meet him? You know, they, those people still exist to them in their minds. And yet most people just completely avoid it. And so you suffer and you feel isolated. Does anybody understand? Does anybody care? Come on, raise your hand if you've been here. Come on, come on. Number two, the second word she uses, second mark of suffering, is implosion. 
implosion. You become self-absorbed and you can't think about anything or anyone else, just your hurt. We've probably all been there, those of us who've really suffered. This self-absorption renders you unable to give, receive, or feel love. All you can think about is how bad you're hurting. You implode. The third thing is condemnation. And this won't happen for everybody, but will in many cases. You become aware of your weakness and the worst parts of yourself. So you're condemning, why can't I handle this? Why am I so upset? Why aren't I feeling better now? Why haven't I gotten over this? And you may actually have somebody who's never suffered telling you you should have been over it. Let me say this. Until you have suffered, you're worthless to people who are. Until you have suffered, you're worthless to people who are. Because you'll just say, get over it. He's been dead a year. She's been gone for two years. Just get over it. People who've really suffered never tell anybody to do that. Condemnation. The fourth one is anger. See, a lot of this one. You're angry toward yourself. Maybe it's you kind of caused it. You're angry toward others. They didn't give you what they should have given you. Your spouse was unfaithful. Your children have embarrassed you, whatever else it might be. You're angry toward the injustice of it all. You're angry toward the, how empty life seems to be. And then usually you end up, whether most people won't get, have the guts to admit it, but frankly, usually end up angry toward God, as if somehow it's his fault. Remember, you've been a good boy. God owes you. Now back up. Remember, this is a church that was doing everything right. But they still had tribulation. They were still financially poor. They were still getting things said about them that were untrue. People speaking to hurt them. And they were about to be put in jail, a bunch of them, and some of them were going to die. Anger. And then the fifth one is temptation. Talked about this recently. Affliction can become a great excuse for all sorts of behavior or patterns of life that you could not otherwise justify. In other words, when you suffer long enough and deeply enough, you convince yourself that you deserve to feel good, no matter what it involves. A lot of people get that way. They're in, they fall into clinical depression, and then they decide they deserve to feel good, and they deserve to have that affair. They deserve to take that drug. They deserve to drink that alcohol, whatever it might be. Because they've hurt long enough and deep enough, and God will understand because they've hurt so bad for so long. I've said this for years. People who hurt long enough and deeply enough, if they don't find some legitimate relief, they will eventually find some illegitimate relief. That's why you've got to manage how you're doing emotionally. You ought to manage how you're doing physically. You ought to manage how you're doing mentally. You got to manage how you're doing emotionally because you get drained out. Life will drain you, the life out of you. And then the next thing you know, you're a sitting duck for some sin that you would never have committed in a good day. 
You would never imagine doing it. You, you know, uh, so many preachers who messed up, uh, Howard Hendricks spoke to a whole host of them that happened way, probably about 25 years ago. There were a bunch of them went down all across the country, big church pastors. Howard Hendricks had the, had the credibility to talk to every one of them. Every one of them said, the first thing they said was, it's the last thing I ever thought I'd ever do. There's no way I would do that. But you know what? Life beat them up. Their churches beat them up. Trying to grow a church beat them up. They got empty. Like most pastors, they didn't go see a counselor. It looked bad or if somebody thought they were weak. And so they internalized it all and they imploded. And eventually they got, so hurt, they got to hurting so deeply for so long that they sought out relief. They said this, all sins are attempts to fill voids. That is so true. We're filling voids. Suffering is what happens to us. Affliction is what happens in us. And the affliction does more damage than the suffering does. You see that? Now, let's look at the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, Paul gives this list of the many things he suffered. Listen to this list. It includes being imprisoned, being beaten so many times he had lost count, receiving 39 lashes from a whip on five different occasions, being beaten three times with rods, and being stoned and left for dead. I think it's, that was in Lystra. I think that's when he went to heaven and came back. His suffering was incredible, but not nearly as incredible as how minimal his affliction seemed to be. I mean, you look at what happened to him and you go, wow, who could survive that? Well, Paul's not just going to survive it. He's going to thrive in it. In Philippians 4.13, Paul writes that he had learned to be content no matter what the circumstance. What if the circumstance is being in prison? Yep. What if it's being beaten again? Yep. What if it's receiving the 39 lashes, that whip? Yep. What if it's uh, being beaten with rods? Yep. What if it's being stoned by the people you're trying to bring to Christ? Yep. In verse 13 of that's when he says that he can handle whatever it is. Because he can handle all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens him. See, Paul went through enormous suffering, but almost no affliction whatsoever. What happened inside of him was bigger than what was happening to him. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul calls all of his suffering, watch this, momentary light affliction. Would you call that list momentary light affliction? He said it's producing in him an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Wow. See, Paul had more in him than life in a cursed world could put on him and then people at their worst could do to him. Incredible suffering, almost no affliction. He went through far more than we do, but he was so much more than we are. Now, the third thing I want to talk to you about is how to suffer well. How to suffer well. 
We're not exempt. As I told you, Jesus, Paul, the apostles, John the Baptist, the prophets, the reason for most all of their suffering was their love for, faith in, obedience to Jesus. But they suffered well. So how do you do that? It's universal. I mean, everybody's going to suffer. You're going to suffer with the Lord, or you're going to suffer without the Lord. You're going to suffer trusting the Lord, or you're going to suffer not trusting the Lord. So everybody's going to suffer. How do you suffer well? Well, I've got several things. Number one, realize that you are a part of God's story. You are a part of God's story. It's not so much that he's a part of yours. You're not the center of the universe, and God just happens to play a part. He just has a small role in your play. No. The story is his story. It's about him and his glory. It's not about you, and it's sure not about your happiness or my happiness. It's about God's glory. And for God to receive glory does not require me being happy. Agreed? But what we want to do is make it our story. So we don't exist for God, he exists for us. We're not here to serve him, he's there to serve us. We, we, we've created this man-made gospel, this man-centered gospel. Life is not our story, it's his. It's not about us, it's about him. The more you think life should be about you and your happiness, the less happy you're sure to be because everybody's not going to get the memo. Right? Everybody else in the room, everybody else at work, everybody else everywhere is not, isn't sitting thinking, well, the, you know, the whole purpose of this world is for Rocky to be happy. In fact, nobody's thinking that. If history is his story, and it is, then life is about God, his plan, his glory. If it's about him, then I don't have to get my way. I don't have to be happy. It can be a great story without my happiness. Are you tracking with me? Now, this really separates Christians from non-Christians because a lot of non-Christians who think they're Christians who go to church and act like Christians really are only there because they think God's going to do stuff for them. In the next episode of the Revelation series with Dr. Rocky Ramsey, Pastor Rocky will finish sharing the five ways that we can suffer well since it's an inevitable part of life. Don't miss it. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. If you have any questions at all, visit us online at CoryptonChurch.com or drop us a message or comment on social media. We're at Coryton Church. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we pray God's richest blessings on your life. Give us a rating, hit subscribe, and have a fantastic day.